well, well, well. Welcome back, everyone. It is your favorite part of the week. It's another Crime Scene Queens episode here with your girls. Naturally, I'm Laura, your resident CSI and field mouse. Hey, y'all. I am Shelly. I'm your legal beagle and your resident court rat. And we are here to take another deep dive back into the real deal of what Crime Scene Investigation is all about. So today, we're going to be talking about a hot topic that you see a lot on court shows, and that is DNA. Collecting it, DNA results, the different levels of what we can actually receive back from the lab, and what constitutes a match, what doesn't, and a whole lot of crap that people have learned from TV that isn't even real. But (laughs) before we go down that road, Shelly. Hi, how's it going? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. So we kind of have a fun episode. We do. But I was also thinking about today. Did you know that one time in the middle of my career, I decided it would be a good idea to cut To go to band camp? (laughs) No, not that. Definitely not. Um, (laughs) Definitely not. No, to cut bangs. Like, I thought that I wanted bangs. Can you think of why that might be a terrible idea? Uh, Maybe because of DNA purposes? No, because when you are sweating, bangs turn into little blades of sweat that stab you in the eyeballs and they don't fit back into a ponytail. So when you've been on a crime scene for hours and hours in Florida, sweating your ovaries, not balls off, you now have to deal with sweat blades of hair stabbing you in the eyeballs because when you're new to bangs, you don't know to bring a clip to push them back or hold them back. Yes, with. I I actually do know a little <laughs> bit about bangs. So bangs, if you don't mind me calling you that for today. Nah. Um, you know, I mean, we can call you bangs or we can say, you know, hey, this is Shelly, not bangs. And I am the legal beagle um, for today's episode and for all the episodes because I'm one of your crime scene queens. And who are you again, Laura? I am your field mouse to Shelly's court rat. <laughs> there you go. I kind of like that, actually. That's, that's <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, we can't call you a lab rat, so we'll call you a court rat and I can be the field mouse. <laughs> I kind of like it. I totally like it, actually. That's yeah, it. but don't call me bangs for this episode because I don't have any because I learned my lesson the hard way. That's so funny. <laughs> Well, they looked cute well, on I'm me, sure. though. I mean, you know, they're supposed to frame your face, right? So, I mean. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And I don't, like, have a five head where I have to have them in order to balance out. Thank the, goodness, right? Know, yeah, the symmetry, the symmetry of my face. But <laughs> yeah. here we are. Yeah. So getting into DNA, I feel like every single time somebody has on ever um whether it's a true crime show or one of the bazillions of different CSI iterations on TV there's always like well is there DNA did you get DNA did you get DNA and the public also really likes to hear that we have collected DNA on a scene and that is great that there's an accountability with us being thorough and taking lots of samples. But what I don't think people realize is it's just simply not that easy for a literal multitude of reasons. But just to kind of digress a little bit, in our field, we can get DNA from a multitude of places, the most popular being touch DNA. So that can be from a surface. It can be from an item of clothing. It can be from a weapon. It can be off of like really any appropriate piece of evidence for touch DNA collection. And I'll get into what I mean by appropriate in a second. Uh, Because I wanted to also get into, you know, more substantial forms of DNA collection. And that would be whether you're collecting a sample straight from the source. And it still kind of counts as touch DNA, but we don't really have as much of a question of whether or not we're getting a sample. So something like a swab of blood is not touch DNA, but something like a swab inside of a cheek would be like those saliva cells, those skin cells things of that nature. Um, And I know a lot of people think that we can get DNA from hair. And while that's 
technically true. It's not really the best sample because the DNA that you get from a hair strand is typically mitochondrial DNA, and that's the DNA that we get through the medulla of the hair shaft. So if you look at a cross-section of a strand of hair, you're going to have like this inner core. I'm actually going to stop you there, and maybe we should explain to our listeners what medulla means. Yeah, I'm. so that's kind of what I was saying. Like with if you look at a cross-section of hair, you'll mm-hmm. see like that there's like this internal cavity or like core of that strand of hair and all the DNA that can be collected there which takes up most of the hair is um, mitochondrial and why that is not ideal is because mitochondrial DNA exists from your maternal or mother's side of your family so anybody from that lineage is going to match that DNA profile When you yank a piece of hair out of somebody's head, there's something called a follicular tag. And that's basically like a little piece of skin that attaches to the hair from it being abruptly removed from the scalp. And that is what has that nuclear DNA that we like to see that narrows people down to an individual. And the frequency of that on a crime scene is not good. A lot of hair that you see in crime scenes has been shed. So it lacks that follicular tag. So I kind of wanted to get hair out of the way because people think that this is something that it isn't. So there's your first myth bust today, guys, is that hair is like this huge, significant DNA item. And it's not that we don't collect it. And it's not that it's not important. And it's not that we don't do analysis on it. It's just not the bread and butter of what we like to collect on a crime scene. So... The majority of what we do is going to be a touch DNA. So if you have a stabbing, you're going to make smart decisions like look at the knife. You're going to decide if the hilt or the handle of the knife is more appropriate for DNA collection or for fingerprint analysis. And you're going to know the difference between that those two things because if the knife handle is very smooth and it has a nice clean surface for fingerprints to lay down on, that's what you're going to choose to do because you want to use a best practice, right? So we want to collect the most likely piece of evidence. However, if the handle of that knife is maybe made of leather or is very, very textured and has a grip, that is an ideal candidate for touch DNA collection because that rough, coarse surface is going to kind of be um, coarse on the surface of somebody's hand, and it's going to have like this beautiful amount of DNA cells that it collects in the grooves of that grip. Yeah, because you like you shed mm -hmm. your your skin cells, which you can collect DNA off of that too. Yeah, so definitely. Exactly. And plus the person is, you know, if you're stabbing somebody, you're typically sweating. So we have a lot going on. Touch DNA also is... I mean, it's one of the least preferred DNA sources because either they have to touch the item multiple times or for an extended mm-hmm. period of time. And so, yeah, I mean, when you're mm-hmm. doing the whole stabby stabby thing, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you're yeah, mm-hmm. it's really good. Yeah. So more on that later, Shelly, because Shelly brings up a really good point about least preferred. And she doesn't mean that it's the least collected. It means that there's so many different ways to break it down. But getting back to the knife, what a lot of juries like to see is something like suspect's DNA on the handle of the knife and victim's DNA on the blade from like the blood or whatever. Or like a baseball bat, same thing, like victim's DNA on one side, suspect's on the other. I actually have later on, I have, I I totally have a story for that. But yeah, that's after because I'm I'm super interested. I'm enthralled in what you're talking about. So keep, continue. (laughs) I will go on. So like the way that we collect touch DNA as crime scene investigators in the field because there is some special circumstances where maybe instead of collecting the DNA sample ourselves, if you have the funding to do so, you can actually send entire items of evidence to private laboratories. Sometimes your local lab will do that, but typically we want to go ahead and swab and collect for them because they are so busy. But in unique cases where maybe DNA is going to be what we would assume to be like a small sample, you can send these things to private labs. But for all intensive purposes, I'll stick to my lab rat methodology. So my best practice is that I would have two sterile cotton swabs that I would remove from its individual packaging. 
I liked to use sterile water in its little uh, tube that they come in these days. It's typically the little blue tubes. It's the same one that everybody uses. Back up, back up real quick. So you're talking about these cotton swabs. You're talking about like the uh, oversized Q-tips, right? Yes. So they they look like Q-tips, but they're extra long. Like the handles on them is like five or six inches rather than like the Q-tips you would buy at Walgreens or CVS or some other drugstore. And, and maybe some uh-huh. sexually active men yeah. um, right. might know what we're talking about. Right. Yeah. Um, They are a little bit actually longer than maybe some of the COVID nose swabs that you've seen. Right. So they're pretty long because we want to have, even though our hands are always gloved, we don't want our hand to be close to that sterile cotton because as much effort as we put into preventing cross-contamination, the glove box, you know, it's still open. Like we do our best, but you don't want to come into contact with that cotton at all. So I wet one of my swabs just to prevent oversaturation, but you don't want to swab something dry because that will not give you the most likely amount of allele. It kind of just clicks it in the air and it doesn't it doesn't yeah. necessarily make it stick to it. Yeah. 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 I had a, a mentor give me a really great example about um, think about DNA cells like potato chips, right? So if you try to take a dry cotton swab and collect a potato chip, it's just going to like crumble and some of it might stick to the swab, but you're not going to get what you want. But if you oversaturate the potato chip, it's going to kind of melt into a goo. But if you like lightly wet it, it's going to like stick to that cotton. And I thought that was a really great analogy, but watch like some lab rat DNA analyst is going to be like, no bitch, that's not real. But like, listen, that's what I was told when I was trained. You can come at me later if I'm not correct. But let me just tell you, using my methodology of wetting one swab has certainly gotten me a lot of positive hits. So yeah. Oh, yeah, that. definitely. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, you know, we, we we do what we have to do when we're out in the field with what mm-hmm. we have. So yeah, that's definitely best practice. Right. And so the most taxing element of collecting touch DNA is that they like to say that you should swab until you think you've swabbed enough. And then you should swab some more. And then you should swab some more. Like your cotton swabs should look absolutely disgusting by the time that you're done. And sometimes I've even broken like the sticks. I was told by a lab technician once to swab for three minutes. So what I decided to do was I would pull out my phone and I play a song because songs are typically three to four minutes. Sometimes they're like two and some change, but it helped me remain accountable for how long I was swabbing things. And if you do that, you are more likely to get more DNA. So like I can swab something and collect some DNA. And where that shows up is people think, oh my gosh, this woman has collected DNA. She will find a match. No, that's not quite how it works. DNA isn't an all or nothing science, at least not judicially or legally. And Shelly, I might let you get deeper into this um, and how it applies. But where it comes for us is in my particular lab. Before you go into your lab, I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm super interested. So you're out in the field and you pull out mm-hmm. your phone and now you're like, you know, singing a song or, you know, playing a song while you're like swab mm-hmm. swabbing away. So, I mean, do you have like a, you know, like row, row, row your boat? Like what's your favorite? What's your oh, favorite like a jam? playlist? Yeah. Okay, like, I mean, so... and are you dancing? Because I feel like if I was out there and, you know, I actually played a song, I would probably start dancing. But then I also <laughs> feel like I'm, you know, have that super like blonde. Oh, it's shiny. So if I try to count, <laughs> like, I mean, you know, the 60 minutes each or 60 seconds, you know, for each minute. I'd probably lose track and look at shiny things and I'd never get right. my full three minutes. So so absolutely fill me in because I have to like, you know, swab and like look at my watch and I I look like a crack whore. You know, I just I, I I'm completely <laughs> unfocused. Well, the, also playing the song prevents me from having to like constantly stop and look at my watch too. So I would say that I did not have a particular playlist, but looking back on it now that you're asking, I think there might have been a lot of Dropkick Murphys mixed in with Britney Spears, mixed in with Bruno Mars. Like it was honestly just to match my mood. There was no particular person that I put on. I mean, there was Little Wayne. <laughs> um, <laughs> but then there was sometimes like if I was feeling a certain way, I would play like meditation yoga music. 
So you really can't put a pin in me and call me anything. I really have the most ridiculous playlists on my phone. Pretty much the only thing that isn't on there is yodeling. (laughs) What you got against yodeling? I don't like it. I mean, I'd rather listen to Tom Petty. (laughs) (laughs) You're breaking my heart. (laughs) I know. I'm so sorry to disappoint you with like my lack of taste for yodeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's cool. Okay, I'm sorry. So, you know, now that we're like dancing in the field, because that's exactly what I would do. Oh. Is I'm dancing in the field, listening yes. to music while you're swabbing and I'm doing whatever because I hear the music and I just want to dance. And so now we're finished with that mm-hmm. tonight. We're back in the lab. All right, hit it with yeah. the lab. Well, and to answer that question, girl, I have like most definitely danced on a crime scene and not even realized it. And I turned around and there were like four cops staring at me with like literal hand over mouth, other hand pointing at me and like laughing. And I didn't hear it because I had in the headphones. I wish I could have kicked them all right in the shins. They were such dickholes for doing that to me. But, (laughs) you know, I guess there are other ways to be embarrassed that are worse than that. Speaking (laughs) of a dickhole, that kind of is where I was going with that whole cotton swab thing. Mm -hmm. Yep. Circling back. um, Circling back to swabbing dicks. um, (laughs) I have swabbed a dick. Sexual assault cases, if people are caught in the act, which has happened for certain statutory rape cases that I have worked or other more sensitive situations, I have literally had to like remove a condom from a penis, swab one side of the condom and then swab the other side of the condom. And y'all, like, I don't care what your sexual preference is in this world. Swabbing dicks is fucking gross. Swabbing dicks is fucking gross. And I don't like doing it because, you know, the victim goes to the sexual assault treatment center in Florida. Like, we typically would only collect things like clothing or um, the cheek or buccal. We call it. Uh, the buckle, buckle stand. But bu- bu- some people say buckle. You say buckle. I say buckle. Like it's like a tomato tomato thing. Yeah. But we would only to collect that um, elimination standard. Um, so an elimination standard is a DNA sample that we would collect from a victim or somebody else who had made contact with the evidence that is meant to be eliminated from consideration as the suspect. So like, for example, I had somebody commit an uh, armed carjacking and there was a baby in the car and the suspects were nice enough to remove the baby from the car before they stole it. So I had to collect a, a swabbing from mom, dad, and the baby after I swabbed the baby carrier because likely mom, dad, baby's DNA was on the carrier. So I needed their standards for elimination. So I want to get into this deeper, actually. And I know we got a little bit sidetracked, but I feel like this is really important to address for our audience because there is a really huge misunderstanding about the DNA databases that law enforcement keeps, particularly in relation to CODIS. Do you want to define CODIS for me, Shelly? Because I always miss up one, mess up one letter in that acronym. Yeah, CODIS is the acronym for the Combined DNA Index System. And Thank you. it's the FBI's program. <laughs> yeah. Support for criminal yes. justice DNA databases. You know, it's their whole, it's it's everything. It's their database. It's the software that they use and mm-hmm. everything. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And- yes. And so a lot of victims will deny me a DNA sample on a crime scene because they think that their past indiscretions that maybe they were never caught or convicted or arrested for will all start to filter in. Now, that is never going to happen to you. CODIS is an offender-only database, and there is seriously gigantic fines and consequences for submitting DNA into CODIS that is not an offender, that we don't absolutely know is an offender, to the point where it was almost a weekly fight with the crime lab on what they would enter into CODIS and what they would yeah, not. Yeah, for CODIS, um, you know, we're going to be doing or uh, referencing, you know, a couple of topics in this uh, episode, and they kind of coincide with another episode that we have, mm-hmm. which is the courtroom testimony. And yes. that's definitely one of them talking about CODIS. Y'all, Shelly is the courtroom expert that you get to 
hear all of her words of wisdom from. And CODIS is such a big deal because it actually does tie a lot of offenders to crime scenes, and it does help us resolve a lot of these bigger more violent, more heinous scenes. Like this really is a great tool for us, but unfortunately people misunderstand it. And that is a myth that we are going to get deeper into debunking on a future episode. So please look out for that. So squirreling right on back to the lab of DNA analysis. So I am not going to get too deeply into this. This is not my area of expertise, okay? I want to be very clear on that. I'm going to say what has been communicated to me by professionals, and we are most likely or most definitely going to be inviting a professional in this field on this show at some point. So basically, every jurisdiction and every lab has different criteria that DNA needs to meet to be considered a contributor, a match, and a source, Okay, so just because we collect your DNA from something, just like that baby carrier, it might be a very diluted sample or combined sample because on that baby carrier, whose DNA do you think is going to be most dominant? Mom and dad's or offender? Well, it's definitely going to be mom and dad's or the babies because they are the ones that most frequently make contact with the baby carrier. The asshole who stole the car only grabbed the carrier that one time. The hope that we have is that since his sample would have been the freshest, that there's still some standard left. However, unless you have video saying exactly where that person grabbed the baby carrier, you have to take a sample from like the entire handle. And that will continue to, and for lack of a better phrase, bastardize that sample. Because the more area that you collect from, the more sample that you have to collect that isn't that offenders. So that would be an example of like, maybe I got three profiles from that baby carrier. And because I submitted elimination standards, we're able to identify this sample was from mom, this sample was from dad. And if I'm lucky, the paperwork will tell me there was enough of the third sample for us to run it through CODIS. But sometimes they will say, There wasn't enough DNA material for us to submit it for CODIS. It does not meet the criteria. Now let's go ahead and assume that it did make the criteria. The sample would come back. It would match the person, hopefully, or it would say something like, this sample is consistent with an individual who is a black male or a white female, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Without that, sometimes we can move on to a greater sample. So like, let's get out of the baby carrier. Like, let's just say somebody dropped a cigarette like on the ground in your house when they had broken into it or robbed your house, or I'm sorry, burglarized your house. We'll get into the difference between burglary and robbery in another episode because that's another annoying thing. They dropped a cigarette. So you swab the cigarette. Okay. So now we have a match. Now we have a lot more sample. And when you have something like blood or cheek swabs, that's when you're in the territory of a source. Okay, so people need to be understanding that just because we collect a sample does not mean that it's enough. And we are not in the practice of falsifying or creating evidence in crime scene investigation. We are simply here to do our best to get as much as we can. Absolutely. Yeah. And the myth that you busted earlier with the process You were just talking about, you know, it came back and it matches mom, dad, Mm -hmm. baby, or, Mm -hmm. you know, it matches crook. So is there potential new myth that might be handy to toss in here? So what Shelly is winking at me to say is that CSIs and forensic practitioners alike are really, really sick of television making it seem like DNA results come back within a day, a week, a month, or at times, even a year, okay? Or even like 45-minute episodes, right? Or even even 45-minute episodes. It's so ridiculous. So the nitty-gritty truth is, guys, our local government DNA labs or our state government DNA labs or even the FBI laboratory, they do not have enough resources. They do not have enough people to process this evidence in a way that is 
anywhere close to what TV has created for expectations and or the public. Like, every time I collect DNA on a burglarized home, I always tell the homeowner, like, listen, I care about this, that it happened to you, but I'm not going to lie. You're not going to get these DNA results back for, like, literally years. And the only thing that could expedite that is, and I have had this happen, if, like, the suspect cut themselves after they broke the window when they came in and there's blood everywhere, that will expedite your DNA results. But if I'm just collecting, like, door handle swabs or the top of counters, that is not coming to you for years because they do triage DNA. Homicide comes first y'all okay yeah attempted murder homicide sex bat like all of that stuff comes up there yeah so sometimes you can get your dna results back quicker if somebody's actually been murdered but likely it will take some time the only exception is going right back to what i said earlier about those private labs if an agency has the funding there are private labs like DNA Labs International or a myriad of others that, depending on how much you can pay, you can have your DNA results back in two weeks and at times days. But that is very, very, very expensive. And rare. So, Super and rare. And rare. Mm-hmm. I mean, some agencies have written grants and they have whole unique budgets just to expedite DNA in this way. And whether or not the public likes it, there are high profile cases that do end up being expedited because of public pressure or the media's pressure. So we like to think of all of our victims as equally as important. But unfortunately, that's not the way that the world works. The dog and pony show still has to go on. So... Those things tend to get processed quicker as well. So you were talking about some famous cases. And I mean, you know, right off the top yeah. of my head, like OJ mm-hmm. was a famous case that, you know, oh, obviously, good Lord. yeah, I mean, that one was expedited, you know, for obvious reasons. There's actually, you know, there's definitely a couple of them that have been expedited. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's 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 a few more uh, some cases that, you know, I I definitely like to, to hit on, uh, Please. you know, when. I, I mean, if you're ready for them now, I can totally like I can roll. Yeah, with girl, that. I've been talking a lot. <laughs> All right. So I think a lot of people might know who the Golden State Killer is. Yes. Um, yeah. So he actually DNA was something that linked him to all the murders. And yep. it came from, you know, like one of the the Ancestry.com or 23andMe things where, you know, his family submitted into that. Uh, in you know into those databases and then all of a sudden there's a hit because way back when in like the 70s late 70s you know when he was committing all of his uh crimes his heinous crimes they collected the dna and they saved it and so that i don't know if that's a myth that we can bust but it's definitely something interesting you know we can save dna for a long time as long as we preserve it properly but you know the, so his family submitted the dna uh that and then they checked it and it came back to him and he you know super busted 2018 uh, I know. found him it was such a great story too I think Michelle McNamara yeah was the one who kind of contributed a lot to his capture as well uh Patton Oswald's wife who passed yeah. away suddenly I believe yeah she was huge on that case yeah yeah and uh you know there's a couple of other guys that you know I had run-ins with which was really cool mm-hmm. um and, you know, they they talked about it and they were some of the um, some of the guys that actually were on scene. So, yeah, I mean, it was I think he what did he have like 50 rapes and he had like a over about a dozen murders and such. And, yeah, it was from like Ugh. the I want to say it was about probably the mid mid 70s to mid 80s. And he was a cop and he was working I and can't. yeah, traveling and doing all these things. And so. You know, it's kind of crazy because as a cop, you know, you're trusted uh, and, you know, sometimes you take that knowledge and you abuse it. And, you know, just because there's one bad apple doesn't mean the entire tree is bad. So that well, I it's an abuse wanna... of power as well. I mean, good, good Lord. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we also had a uh, an instance where there was some DNA that was left on a rope mm. and um, this it was a questioned it whether it was a murder or whether it was a suicide Mm -hmm. and you know the 
person was found hanging and there was the DNA, there was certain DNA that was on the rope. So they yeah. found DNA, you know, they found footprints, uh, you know, they did a bunch of different things, but shoe impressions. Sorry. Yeah. Shoe I, I was dumb. I was dumbing it down. I apologize. Girlfriend. I apologize. I was, I was dumbing it down because, you know, I mean, I didn't want to. I know, you know but I yeah. had to say something because I just yeah, felt foot, the face they cringe. Found footwear impressions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there were footwear impressions that, you know, they they lifted. And um, so on this rope, they actually found multiple DNA. And mm. it's crazy because part of the DNA that they found was from one of the crime scene investigators because yep. he, that person was not wearing a mask mm -hmm. and they were talking. And as they were talking, they mm -hmm. were spitting mm -hmm. just like the normal person does. And they found their DNA on the rope. And it was like, wait a second, did you yep. have anything to do with this? And of course they were cleared because, you know, they had proper yeah. allies and all that. But yeah, I mean, super crazy. So there's certain instances where there's DNA that is just, you know, it's very, very simple, different types of DNA that yep. they collect. And then there's other times where it's really hard to get DNA off of things. So yeah. And you know, to your yeah. point, our local lab, when we got hired in CSI, they all collected our samples just to have on file as an elimination standard. So I always joked with them that I could now go on my like crime spree. <laughs> because they oh, had 100%. me they had me as an elimination <laughs> which you know okay so on that kind of funny so when i was teaching crime scene investigations uh, i would tell the class you know because they always want to know oh what's you know what's your craziest thing you've seen i'm like ah, you're crazy is not my crazy um and you know so they ask me crazy questions right and i always tell them they say you know what's what's like the best the best fun fact that we could get out of this mm -hmm. class and i said you want to you want to know how to get away with uh, murder? And they're like, yeah. oh, my gosh, absolutely. <laughs> so I always tell them, I say, well, here's what you do. So you go to your local, uh, you know, haircutting place, right? Like Fantastic right. Sam's. There, you know, everyone goes there. They cut hundreds of people's hair, yep. you know, daily, every other day, weekly, whatever. You go, you grab their trash. What is their trash filled with? How many people's DNA? Because it's all their hair. But it's all so, mitochondrial. <laughs> yeah, well, so I tell them, I say, so, you know, and this is... This just I'm I'm not being serious. Do not try this. This is absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. But it's what I tell them, and you know, I tell them I say after you commit your crime, just go ahead and toss that that hair bag of all the hair, and you just sprinkle the crime scene, and you'll get away with it. And they're like, really? I'm like, no, absolutely That's not. But it's so a good idea. <laughs> you know what? I did see a meme or like one of those social media graphics where it said, um, I wonder if the suspect if, is wearing a wig when they commit a crime that if there's hair evidence found that it will tie it back to the hair donor that <laughs> whose hair I made the wig. <laughs> okay, so I saw that too, like the locks of love, yes, right? So like, like, you're going to donate to me. Yes. I'm going to put the, I'm going to do the locks of love and then all of a sudden I'm going to go commit a crime and it's going to go back to yeah, you because you donated back. your hair to me. I have had the question before, like, is DNA, like, is it possible that your sample could be mixed up? You know, like on the Maury episodes, you know, could it really not be me that's the father? So the only person that could possibly share your DNA is an identical twin. Just yes. FYI, guys, CSI EDU, the only person that can share your, your DNA is your identical twin. However, no one shares your fingerprints. So fingerprints are actually better evidence, just so you know. So circling back to that whole best evidence, mm -hmm. yeah. So actually, that is a great thing to circle back to, Shelly, because I have been asked in a deposition from a defense attorney, why did you choose that over this? And just because you fingerprinted it, why didn't you swab it? Okay, well, that question was fake because you can absolutely swab after you fingerprint, but you cannot fingerprint after you swab. So just like we were talking about introducing substances and profiles into a DNA sample that you take that would dilute it or ruin it in some way, fingerprint powder does not destroy DNA. However, it doesn't help. It kind of makes the sample not as good. So if I think that a surface is better suited for fingerprint, I'm still going to do that first, but then also take a swab. But I would never fingerprint after I swab because that's stupid and it doesn't make sense. Unless 
there was like a particular area of the item that I didn't reach with the swab and maybe I would use a chemical agent. Again, we're going to have a whole fingerprinting episode, so I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole um, as we tend to do when we kind of CSI geek out over here. But, you know, the DNA that we find on scenes, it kind of ties back to the foundational statement or theory that we operate on in crime scene. And it's something called the Locard exchange theory. And what the theory states is that every contact leads a trace. And that leaves a trace. The longer way to get into what the Locard exchange theory says is that like if I walk into any place, when I leave, a piece of me stayed in that place and I took a piece of that place with me when I left on some microscopic, teeny tiny level. So no matter how short of a time I'm in a room, a car, anywhere, I take something with me and I leave something when I go. So that is the theory in which we base our evidence collection joy on. <laughs> and yeah, and just just a little bit of a history on the Locard. So Locard Exchange is uh, from Edmund Locard, who mm-hmm. was a French criminal criminologist. And so, you know, those French, they have to name everything after <laughs> themselves. Nah, not really. I don't know. I mean, why would we do that right? too in America? Who are we kidding? <laughs> I, mean, I think everyone does it and everyone should do it. I mean, why not? Right. But right. yeah, so um, Edmund Locard, it was that was his. And so I, I yeah, that low card exchange is, you know, when you when you go to a crime scene, you take a piece with you and you leave a piece of yourself. So it's yep. it's a pretty cool thing. And that's, you know, that's kind of crime crime scene 101. Yeah. And, you know, like I have had so many crime scenes where DNA was significant and we're going to be sharing a lot of success stories on this show. So one thing that is important to understand is that sometimes a lack of evidence is just as important as the presence of evidence, but sometimes it's just not there, even when you know it should be. So here's my story. Little CSI Laura (laughs) is at the end of her workday, and I'm all excited to go home and enjoy food and or wine and or whatever else that I was going to do or I thought I was going to do that day. And We hear, I don't know how it works for other CSIs that might be listening to this show, but whenever you have something big happen, there's an alert turn that comes over our police radio and it's like, and it's really, really loud and annoying and it's made to be that way so everybody pays attention. And these are usually done when there's like an active incident or somebody's fleeing a crime scene or there's something that requires urgent attention. So a woman was found in her home dead. And all the officers respond, and then sure enough, I hear the phone ring about a half an hour later, just like I knew it was going to, because we attend pretty much every death investigation outlined in the stipulations from our previous episode on autopsies. So if you don't know what I'm saying, go back and listen to that episode, because I'm not going to get into it here. But so we get the call, and my lieutenant's like, Hey, Laura. And I'm like, I hate you. Because he knew it was the end of my day, all right? He knew it. Okay, but be- before <laughs> before you got the call, what what was that noise? I feel like we should, like, capture this noise. I love it. <laughs> love the noise. Yeah, okay, all right, yeah. Like, yeah. So okay, he's like, sorry, hey, continue. hey, girl, hey. And I'm like, no, shut up. And then uh, he's like, okay, listen, we're pretty sure it's a natural death, but... She's not quite old enough. We don't have a doctor to sign off on it, but that's kind of stupid because she's having dialysis and all these other things. And I'm like, all right, whatever, I'll go. So one of my favorite detectives and I went to the crime scene and I don't blame the road officers, okay? But we get there and I'm taking my pictures and I'm taking my pictures and the victim is sitting on her couch and she's kind of slouched over, but that's not very alarming to me. The entire apartment is pretty disheveled and in a state of disarray. So when I saw her purse on the floor kind of knocked over with the contents spilled out, I wasn't very- Could have been a drunken night. Well, it's not just that, but she had, it was an efficiency. So everything was in the one room and she had two dogs and she died. So like the dog could have knocked it over. She clearly didn't take very good care of her things. So maybe she had just dumped it down. 
So I'm taking my pictures and I turn around to start taking overall photographs of her. And I'm like, oh, fuck. And I say, hey, Jimmy, who was that detective working with me? And he goes, yes, dear. And I'm like, so when somebody dies naturally, do they have two black eyes and a forehead swollen up like a grapefruit? And he's like, cocksucker, motherfucker, blah, 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 blah. And the amount of profanities that came out of this New York retired police officer's mouth was like just way worse than I can even go into here. So the road officers, what I mean by that, you guys, is the the cops that are on road patrol. So you have detectives, you have canine officers, you have student resource officers in schools. Police can go into different divisions. So the road officers are the ones that are actually out on patrol. They're not riding the motorcycles. Those are the traffic unit. Yeah, we call ours, uh, yeah. Patrol. Yeah, we call them road monkeys sometimes. Um, <laughs> but it's just because we say that a trained monkey can do their job, but we're saying that to be rude and just to poke fun at our friends, not to be actually mean, just to poke fun at our friends. So basically what happened is when road showed up to her death, None of that existed because as Shelly and I know and as every CSI knows that's listening, bruising takes time. Mm -hmm. It doesn't just show up at the onset of trauma. And by the time that I got to this scene, it was a couple of hours later. So she might have had some bruising when they saw her, but this woman was very dirty. And I really doubt that what they saw was what I saw. So very clearly, this woman was not a natural death. So that changes the entire investigation, okay? Long story short, she had a friend that was a homeless man that they would get along, and she was very lonely, and he was homeless, so she would invite him to, like, sleep on her couch. They did not have an intimate relationship, um, but they were friends and they would go buy like the cheapest handle of vodka and they would get really wasted together and kind of pass out at her apartment. I guess what happened this particular night is that they got wasted. They got into an argument and he beat the shit out of her and then strangled her to death. So I kind of almost nailed it when I said it was a drunken night. Mm-hmm. You did because you're just that good, my friend. You're just that good. <laughs> so... It took us a couple of hours to come to this conclusion and just as how what led us there, as I was saying earlier about bruising taking some time, because he was the one that found her, I had to naturally photograph him, collect evidence from him, get a standard from him for what I thought at the time was elimination. And I'm taking pictures of him. And, dun, all, dun, dun. Uh-huh, and all these scratches start showing up on his arms and on his neck. But I knew that he couldn't see that yet, though, because there wasn't like a mirror. So I'm like, hey, um, because you found her and you touched her, do you mind if I take a sample from under your fingernails and swab your hands? And he's like, yeah, no problem. So there was like blood, not a lot of blood but just enough blood on his hands for me to see. And I'll be like, oh, I, I see that you have some blood on your hands. Have, do you have a cut? Just trying to kind of like bait him, you know? And he's like, no, I don't have any cuts on my hands. I haven't hurt myself. I said, oh, okay. Then who knows where this came from? And so I collect the blood and all of that. So because he was homeless, his primary mode of transportation was a bicycle. So what he had done is killed her, passed out, woken up, freaked out, got on his bicycle and kind of rode around town. And because they were friends, he then experienced guilt. And that's when he called the police. And if you listen to the 911 call, he even starts weeping and saying that he's sorry on the call. So the detective, like, let's fast forward off scene. I've collected his bike. I've taken this standard from his hands. And the detective's like, you know, Laura, it would be really helpful if we could do something that illustrates that he left the scene and came back. So can you please swab the bicycle handles since he had blood on his hands and see if you can get her blood on his bicycle handles? And I was like, oh, that's such a great idea. So I definitely swab well beyond three minutes on each one of those bicycle handles individually. 
And we rushed that DNA sample with the private lab, and it did not come back with her DNA. What? Mm-hmm. It did not. And I know that I did a good job collecting the sample. I know that he had the blood on his hands. Who knows if, like, he just wasn't making co- – like, I don't know the reason why it wasn't there, but it just wasn't. And oh, okay. It's it's just the nature of evidence. Like I might have known that what happened because it was from his own mouth that he got on the bike and rode away and came back. So like that yeah. wasn't in dispute. But sometimes it's just not there. Yeah. So I mean that kind of just blows my whole. I I was I, know. I was super gonna lead into this like hint for listeners like if you're ever being attacked, make sure you scratch someone or you know you want to get their DNA. Oh under no, your that nails would work because <laughs> that would totally well, yeah, work. So, yes. I mean. You know, like the autopsy episode, you know, you talk about scraping the nails and such. And we do that for DNA, especially if it's a murder, homicide, you know, a crime, crime of passion. Absolutely. Because what are you going to do? You're going to be scratching. So Mm -hmm. we'll find out who did it based on underneath your fingernails. Yeah. And to speak um, more on proper evidence collection with DNA, the second that we had arrived on scene, even before he was a suspect, we have a process that we do called bagging hands. So yeah. I knew that he had come into contact with my victim. So some forensic supply companies sell special bags for this, but I didn't have those at the time. I had them later in my career. Basically, you just take a plain brown paper bag and you tape it to that around that person's wrists so that anything that falls off of their hands is then collected in that bag. So his hands were bagged. So that's Yummy how I know. Lunch, mm-hmm. brown, brown, yes, brown bag the same lunch. kind of bag. <laughs> exactly. Yep. And that's how I was preventing any amount of cross-contamination even before I knew that this man was a person of interest. I just thought he was somebody that found his friend and was unlucky. Yeah. that Well, that's, you know, fortunate yet un- unfortunate as well. Yeah. I felt like I should tell that story because throughout the duration of us doing this show, we're probably going to be sharing a lot of success stories. But I am happy to admit a time where it just wasn't there. Yeah. And, and we are, you know, as crime scene investigators, as forensic evidence techs, whatever mm-hmm. your title may be, you are not to create any evidence. You are just there to collect whatever evidence is there on scene. Yeah, I mean, and you referenced OJ earlier. One of the biggest reasons why that trial had the result that it did was because of absolutely disgusting and horrible evidence handling and chain of custody issues. Absolutely. And that might have been the 90s, but I mean, putting evidence in like your personal car and driving it home, even at that time, I can't even, I like just can't. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, I'm sure the legal process, there were motions and, you know, all kinds of stuff that, you know, we'll definitely be getting into in other episodes for our courtroom testimony and little tips and tricks and hints. Absolutely. And, you know, I really look forward to that episode too, Shelley, because I have testified plenty of times and I have taken a courtroom testimony class, but not yours. And I think that you are going to be able to offer such great advice to people and also provide the public with a perspective on like how these things can go for those of us on the stand. And, you know, some people might be the best CSI on the planet But testifying in court is just so awful for them that they might not be able to articulate their knowledge, their skills, or their abilities in that way. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, I I, for sure I teach that. I mean, that's that's like the crux of what I do. So that'll be a fun episode as well. I can't wait. But, you know, is there anything else that we didn't cover? Girl, help me. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of wanted to to circle back to the whole dick swabbing. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll definitely I'll be getting into it a little bit more in that episode. But I do actually, you know what, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna lead with a teaser and just say that I did have someone that actually had to testify on the stand. Oh, and gosh, do a visual on how they swabbed a penis for uh, a sexual assault. What so, did they use? A banana? What the fuck? You'll How have to find demo- out. Yeah, you'll for <laughs> sure have to find out. So you'll have to listen to that episode. And- the hashtag oh, yeah. for this week is swabbing dicks ain't easy. <laughs> so- when the hose ain't sleazy, the swabbing dicks ain't easy. <laughs> 
A hundred percent. Yeah. Oh absolutely. my yeah. God. And, you know, I mean, I think we should also, uh, you know, do another little teaser on the CSI effect. And I know that yes. a lot of people don't know what the CSI effect is, or maybe they do, but they may have a, you know, a misunderstanding of what it is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's definitely going to be talked about in the courtroom testimony episode as well, because the CSI effect is, you know, we kind of hit on a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, your DNA, let's let's take the DNA and we're going to process it right now. And, you know, 20, 30, maybe 45 minutes later, oh, my gosh, it's a match. Oh, come on, bro. Uh, yeah. That, that doesn't happen. Yeah. And we did tap into that earlier in the episode with those unrealistic expectations. So for sure, it's going to be something that is going to be really nice to carry into the next one. Oh, yeah. Like, I oh, can't yeah. believe we talked about dick swapping, but I totally can at the same time. Oh, 100%. 100%. And I mean, it's such yeah, a weird some. thing because, like, the guy is standing there. Have you had oh, – oh, my God. I had to collect pubic hairs from somebody, and that is so gross. And, like, it <laughs> – And but it's painful. <laughs> it is painful. So that is the only – like, if you know this per- – okay, like, okay, if you highly suspect this person has committed a sexual assault on somebody, uh, yeah, I might, like – Grab the take, tweezers. Get as much of that sample as I possibly can. I'm like, okay, Mr. Rapey Rapey. You don't want it to fail. You got to grab a few. You can't just take one. Because I need that follicular tag. I need that follicular tag, motherfucker. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Don't move. Don't move. I'm going to have to do it again. Don't Uh flinch. I know. Well, why can't you just shave it? Because I need the follicular tag. Yeah. Right. Well, because, you know, if you wouldn't have, you know, committed any crimes, then you wouldn't be here. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see how this works out for you. Yeah. Don't stick yeah. your dick in places it doesn't go. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yes. But I do want to do a quick little wrap up. DNA is great. We love DNA. We collect an awful lot of DNA. However, the lab might not take it all because of their standards. However, we always will collect it so that we have it to fall back on. The lab might not be able to get to your evidence if you're a victim, unless you're a victim of something really, really bad anytime soon. So please be patient with us. We love you. We care, but we can't do anything about it. So, so sorry. That's our wrap up on DNA from the field mouse perspective. We'll get you some more information with a DNA analyst on a later episode. Please invite all of your friends to listen to our shows if you've enjoyed it. Please subscribe if you haven't already yourself. Please do that. And then remember, do your local CSI a favor. And if you're going to die, keep it interesting. 100%. (laughs) All right. Until next time, guys. Thank you, listeners. We love you. We love you. Bye. Crime Scene Queens is a Q-Code Media production. Executive producers, David Henning and Steve Wilson. Produced by Ryan Countshouse. Edited by Nate Dufort. Theme song and music by Darren Johnson. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.